Okay, so today is a little different. We um, had planned to have three people on this podcast, and it turns out we just have two. Unfortunately, one of the regular hosts, Teresa, will not be joining us today. But I'm super glad to have um, our third person now become our second person today, and that's Justin, who is uh, coming to us from Tokyo, where I spent the last three years of my life, and um, was glad to get Justin on the podcast. He's listened to a few episodes. I'm not sure if you've listened to the whole catalog or not, but you expressed interest in coming on the show, and super glad to have you on here. And um, why don't you share with us yeah, a little bit about who you are and uh, why you decided to get involved. Yeah, thank you, Clark. So obviously, Clark and I have known each other for a little while personally, and we've crossed paths professionally as well. I originally come from the U.S. I've been based out here in Tokyo for multiple years at this point and have kind of settled in. It looks like this could be for the long haul, potentially. I've enjoyed my life here and I'm really enjoying engaging with folks like yourself about a wide variety of topics, not only around our industry coverage, but maybe some of the personal interests that we've had. I transplanted from the East Coast of the U.S. and uh, I can say, that, yeah, sure, this this period has been a bit challenging as we all are used to a regular amount of visits with folks, but thanks to things like this that bring us together and the telecommunication ability that we have, we do still remain quite connected. Yeah, it's um, and we've had a lot of conversations just about different types of topics and and um, different things. So and we've got a couple topics today that we wanted to bounce around. And uh, one thing that's great about having somebody else joining or somebody different joining is new and fresh ideas. So I think we should just jump right into one of the topics that you you wanted to cover off, which, and I'm going to, I don't want to introduce it because I think you just, you're the best one to kind of tee it up in terms of what it was you wanted to discuss, but it's kind of related to, well, it's it's totally related to the, the COVID situation. Um, so yeah, why don't you tee it up, what, what you wanted to talk about? Well, one of the things that we'd been bouncing back and forth was just a lot of people like to talk about the things they'd like to do when COVID becomes stable or when things return to what we knew as being normal. So a lot of times people ask questions like, where would you like to go visit? What's the first place you'd want to visit? What's the first thing you'd like to do? What do you miss the most? And while things have been very challenging and we have had to undergo a very different way of living, our work life, our personal life, there are certain things that have kind of come back into the fray. And one of those things that I asked you about, Clark, was what's one of those things that was gone and maybe has returned? And it could be a different format, but there's something that you got out of it. There may be some kind of experience you got out of it. And for me, that was the NBA. The Professional Basketball Association, based in North America, broke around March 11th, March 12th, after they had a COVID case on one of the player, uh, one of the teams, a player named uh, Rudy Gobert, the center for the Utah Jazz, a French national who's been playing there for several years, and he's a top center in the league. Uh, Rudy handled it terribly. He. <laughs> You may have heard, and for those of you who have heard, please excuse the explanation, but Rudy 
after finding out he tested positive, made light of it and got very close to a lot of his teammates and also proceeded to go out and have a interview session with some of the press and jokingly touching the mic and touching some of the different recorders. And this is early, granted. This was before a lot of things really shut down in the U.S. I think it was within, within actually a couple of days. And because of what happened with the NBA, things kind of shifted. And quite rapidly, the NBA realized, both because he had COVID and not long after one of his teammates had COVID, and that led to all kinds of other issues, that they had to shut everything down. And they shut down f- effectively from March until about late July. But it was, so wait, can I just yeah. ask about Rudy for a second? Sure. So, so wasn't I thought when he did that whole microphone rubbing stunt, like in front of all the reporters, did he know he, he'd already had the test by then? Because I thought he was just making light of the whole situation, and then he got the test like a couple days later and tested positive. But he did he do that sort of stunt already knowing he'd been tested? My understanding is that yes, uh, and I'm going to pull back just to make sure I have it right. So on the 9th, he mocked, and you're right, he mocked the distancing policy by touching all the microphones and recording devices in front of him. And within two days, three days, that's when everything shifted. So it was March 11th when everything stopped. And that night, they announced that Rudy Gobert was the first player to test positive. And I believe the following day or a day or two later, his teammate Donovan Mitchell announced that he was positive as well. Yeah, because that's what was so bizarre about it is he made this big scene and everyone was kind of chuckling about it. And then, I mean, you couldn't script it and, and it'd be believable that two days later he actually tests positive and then made the big apology about about that. So, yeah, I just wanted to double check that because yeah, no, that was my understanding. Very good call. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for fact-checking that. Going a bit off the cuff on some of it. So fast forward to June going into July. All leagues, all owners are talking about how do we bring this back? We need this revenue. We need to meet a certain number of minimum games televised so we can generate the revenue from our TV contracts to pay the players and we're not at a loss on the year. But before we go into that, got to go back all the way to the beginning. And the reason I say that is the NBA is a league steeped with drama. And every other league is trying to emulate it. They're trying to make it a 24-7, 365-day-a-year league, whether it be the offseason, the player movement, the draft. Everything is supposed to be high intensity, all eyeballs. They want to try and get as many people engaged in the sport year-round. And the NBA has done a really good job of that. And last summer, they had several key players who moved teams, and they had a great player who was drafted. You may have heard of Zion Williamson. Uh, He was the Duke protege who, coming out of high school, everyone knew he was going to be this amazingly talented athlete. And they had several players who changed teams and all of this buzz kind of going into the the year. Now, the, the league usually kicks off in late October. Well, three weeks before that, while the NBA is doing their typical off-season global tour, they were in China and a few other places, and they were actually in Japan going to China. They played a few games here, and then they were going over to China. And right after they arrived, the GM of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey, tweeted out a pro-democracy of Hong Kong tweet. Which yeah, was I remember that. Very poorly received, of course, in mainland China. 
And immediately the rug gets pulled out from under them. The Lakers, who just won the title, uh, were actually part of that envoy that was in China. And suddenly... Oh, yeah, just won the title now, you mean? Yeah, got it. And suddenly this trip is up in the air. So here they are. They don't know, you know, their persona non grata. They don't know if they're going to be able to even continue with the events. They don't know if they're safe for that matter. And suddenly they have to pull everything back and they have to go back to the U.S. And then the outcome in the following weeks, China and their major television partners pull their deals with the, the NBA. And it's estimated that the total loss just from this year in China revenue is somewhere between 350 and $500 million. Mm, wow. The hard number is somewhere around 400 million is, is the belief. So that's a 400 million loss before you hit COVID. So that the owners are desperate. The owners absolutely want to bring this back. So they come up with this great scheme. Let's create a bubble. Let's bring the league back in a bubble. Let's test the players before they go to the bubble for weeks on end, bring them into the bubble, test them again, keep them in quarantine for a period of time upon their arrival. And then while they're in Orlando, Florida, Walt Disney put this whole thing on because they have multiple athletic facilities and hotels that all can be contained in this tight zone. While this is all going on, we're going to keep a tight bubble, not only with the players, but the coaches, the training staff, and anybody else associated with it. And everybody has to stay within this bubble. And anything that's coming into or out of that bubble, you have tiers of exposure. So if you're a food prep person, you can't come into the bubble, but you hand off to somebody else who's been the bridge. And then you have that going to the people Mm, who are actually bringing the food to them. So there's this tremendous experiment that's happening. And everyone's in the bubble and the league restarts at the end of July. And we fast forward to now, which is... Late October, but about a week ago, the LA Lakers won the title. They beat the Miami Heat four games to one. That's only part of the story. The story really is the product was amazing. The players were zeroed in. They did not take the time off lightly. They were training their bodies. If anything, a fair amount of them got to recover and rest. And you have this amazing product that was a great release for people like myself who love the NBA product. And not only was this a great product and a great performance, but it was this almost a battle of will and strength to get to this point and actually survive being in this bubble and not breaking mentally, emotionally, and physically. And in the end, the team that won was just so physically dominant and so consistent that they were an unending wave in the heat. There was no way, as strong as they were, could resist it. Now, that's the product. That's the outcome. And that was the great part as a fan. But as an experiment, they didn't have one single COVID case the entire time. Yeah, amazing. In three months. And... In some ways, epidemiologists looked at this as a potential way to explore and maybe even contact trace very effectively, but they didn't have any cases to contact trace. So maybe the epidemiologists were a little disappointed. (laughs) Yeah, no data to work with. Absolutely. Considering how the year started and the drama that occurred around the league and how many things that could have gone wrong 
and maybe some of the challenges some of the other sports are dealing with at this moment, I find it astonishing that they were able to pull it off. Now, what will next year look like and the year beyond that? I don't know. I think they get about 35 to 40% of their revenue from the ticket sales. So can mm-hmm. they continue doing this? Can they put 150 to $200 million into throwing a bubble? Unlikely. I wonder how much they saved by doing the bubble. You know, the teams, no traveling, no hotel expenses. I wonder, I wonder have they, if they looked at, have they've obviously looked at that to see. I don't know how much the league would save, but I guess on a team by team basis, there might have been some savings there. I don't know how much that factors into the cost of the overall, you know, not having stadiums filled, having to put light and power and staff into those places. Um, the travel, the, the no travel costs. I wonder how much was saved by that. It'd be interesting to know. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that there's a lot of different elements that are, would be interesting to explore. I know that because they were using so many different vendors to perform their constant testing that they were throughout the bubble, they also helped the testing community learn and how, how to tweak their tests and how to make their tests more rapid in response and, and get those, get those response times down shorter and shorter and shorter. So in some ways they were this perfect test group of several hundred athletes and personnel around the teams that were a constant, that were always going to be tested. Now, while there weren't any positives, it also probably helped them dial in the effectiveness of these tests as well. So when you mentioned the this as an idea, like as a topic, and when I was thinking about originally how, where you were potentially going to go with this, and maybe this is what I want to ask about this, is that I was wondering how much of the 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 way this panned out had to do with what the actual on the court experience for a viewer looked like. Um, some people will probably recall that they ended up putting all these screens up on the to, to simulate a crowd, and, and they were actually, I think, live streaming people from their living rooms that looked like. And they were a little bit bizarre, kind of enlarged heads. And <laughs> I personally, I, I didn't like it. I thought it was kind of weird looking and it, it kind of rub, rubbed me the wrong way for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looked like with basketball, you could kind of contain it in a way, fill up the sort of behind the scenes stuff with that, like it or not, you could fill it in with that and without it feeling too much like you're playing in front of a, an empty arena. So how much of the the way this panned out or the way it turned out, did that affect your enjoyment in any way, the way they set, set that up? I'm of two minds. So I mean, firstly, yes, it did at first because the bubble restarted with about eight games, nine games that the teams played as a ramp up to the playoffs. So effectively, it was deciding seating and ranking within the playoffs. And during that period, sure, the games were competitive, but they weren't as ratcheted up as playoff or postseason competition usually is in any sport. Mm -hmm. So during that period, you have those lulls in games and it becomes a bit more apparent. They also had to kind of work through some of the on-court appearance and experience, not only for us, but for the players as well. By the time it got to the playoffs, the video coordinators and the people who were handling a lot of that were doing a much better job 
and such a good job that the players would get so excited they would almost interact with the video that they saw of a fan yeah. or something like they like it was a fan sitting courtside right yeah yeah so when you see something like that it, it feels like it's crossed crossed that threshold where the players are now buying into it and why shouldn't you as the fan also kind of buy into that to a certain degree could it have been done better maybe I think that would take some time to kind of figure out. To your point about the boards, because basketball is playing in a much smaller area, it's almost like a stage. So if you close it all in, you're not really seeing the wide swaths of open seating. You know, yeah. like, like a foul ball or a home run that's hit in a baseball yep. game. You see hundreds or if not thousands of empty seats. It becomes very stark. And, and all that crowd noise that they like to pump in to make it feel like mm. it's a real thing becomes a bit off-putting in a way. Yeah. Right. From a standpoint of how the NBA handled it, I, I have nothing but praise for them. They, they did a tremendous job. I am biased. <laughs> Full transparency. I am biased. The NBA is my favorite sport. Yeah. But with that said, I think they handled that very effectively. And something I... I think it would be remiss in not touching upon is something that they didn't do. They did not test for marijuana usage. And a big mm. topic in professional sports has been recovery. And for the NFL, for example, where players are dealing with all kinds of pulls, strains, and tears and continuing to play with them, these guys get shot up with things like Toradol. They get all kinds of high, high potency painkillers. And they're put out there numb to try and compete, continue to compete. And they don't really have a chance to recover. And they can't really recover with something that's a non-narcotic or a strong narcotic as something like that. So there's been a bigger push from the athletes to have access to marijuana as a form of recovery or pain, pain maintenance. Yeah, and that could be either, like, I mean, there's tons of, I mean, as you probably know, in Canada, cannabis has become illegal. It's legal now to to have cannabis here. They sell it through authorized and licensed dispensaries. But it isn't just what some people may imagine, which is somebody with a little <laughs> joint, like, smoking up. There are a lot of products, ointments, pills, rub, like, creams and things like that, that you can rub on you know the part of the body so i'm assuming when you say marijuana usage it could be something like it could be ointments and creams and it's not just somebody kind of smoking up with uh you know you're like a you know with a joint or something it's it's not a it's not a ziploc bag filled with with marijuana <laughs> being snuck into the into the bubble per se anymore yeah yeah it's, yeah. it's changed quite a bit uh, there was a time maybe what, four or five years ago as denver Colorado, the state of Colorado was moving through its own legalization process. It was probably more than five years ago, actually, at this point. I'm, I'm dating myself. But when they were going through that, they were warning players, you know, be careful. Even though it is legal in this state, you know, you will yep. still be tested and you definitely should not attempt to bring that with you when you move to mm -hmm. your next destination or city that you'll be playing in. So to that very point, things have shifted quite a bit in terms of legalization and in terms of the medicinal uses of marijuana or cannabis or THC in different products. So Florida is not one of the states that allows the usage of marijuana, I don't think, right? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. That, it, 
that's both kind of surprising and not at the same time, considering mm-hmm. some of the, the the politics around Florida. You can we'll pack say. a gun, but you can't. <laughs> you cannot pack a bowl. marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's interesting. I um, I really thought a lot about just the general question that mm-hmm. you posed when we had a pre-chat last week about what what has changed for you as a result of the pandemic yet has returned, mm-hmm. and you actually find that new format, whatever it might be, it's somehow yeah better or or um, different but mm-hmm. good. Even up to this morning, I I could not think of something that fell into this category. It it was just I wanted to go the route of, well, I wanted to look at what's what changed, and what what was better because of the change. You mm. know, no more commuting, for example, more family time. And I was starting to think, okay, well, now how do we meet people? Okay, we meet people. We don't meet face to face, and now we meet people through. Zoom or through Microsoft Teams. And I was thinking, well, is there anything better about meeting people through Microsoft Teams or Zoom? Maybe it it allows us to be more inclusive of, of people that weren't able to attend a meeting before, but and we wouldn't have had them in on video. Maybe they would have just called in. But I really just couldn't, I could not think of anything that fell into the category of something that changed and got better that wasn't something like, well, I don't have to commute anymore. So I think the thing that changed that I, that got better was me. Mm. And as I I don't want that to sound like self-centered, but things that change, the things for me that changed as a result of the pandemic that got better were I completely increased my physical fitness since, since being locked down, I was able to go running during the day that I wouldn't have done that before. And so I became much more physically active as a result of COVID, which it could have gone the other way. And for a lot of people it did just, especially if you were in an apartment and you weren't allowed to go out, some countries weren't, you know, you weren't even allowed to be on the street or you, you could get into trouble. So that's the best I could come up with was the personal change that it allowed for me. And to this day, I'm still continuing that. I went for a run this morning. I, I just bought a rowing machine, which uh, I'll report out on on that. I spent six months considering buying a rowing machine. The last <laughs> thing I wanted was to buy something that's going to end up as a, a drying rack for my clothes, you know, as these pieces of equipment t- sometimes end up um, doing. But yeah, that's the best I could come up with was just how it, what changed was, was me and... Um, yeah, that's what I, that's that's my story. <laughs> that's very interesting. I, I doubt it'll become a drying rack. Having had a rowing machine in our house before, shortly after we returned from the Caribbean, as a, when I was an adolescent, we we found a tag sale or some kind of yard sale not far from where we lived, and they had a rowing machine. My father said, "Well, that sounds interesting." We we had it, and I used it for a while. To be fair, he used it a little bit too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And eventually it did become a bit of a clothing rack and that didn't last long <laughs> because it's just too large to, to t- take up that kind of space. Oh, so but, you're saying it won't be a uh, clothing rack just because it's too big or it, because you absolutely. think I'll use it? I, I think you'll use it, but I'm saying as a, as a very bottom line, there's no way it's going to last if, if it's sitting there. It's going gonna, it's yeah. gonna to have that impetus for you to start using it. 
Yeah, absolutely. But Good. Well, the comment you made at the top, though, you know, if you wouldn't mind kind of exploring that a little bit more, you mentioned you know, was yourself and you didn't want to sound, please, I'm paraphrasing, but you didn't want to sound self-centered or, or self-aggrandizing in any way. But the reality is if you're putting in the work, then yes, of course, what's coming out better at the other end should be you, right? And it's not just the physical part, but there's other things you've been working on. And I don't want to obviously delve into anything unnecessarily private or, or personal at the moment. But obviously, you're working on a lot of different things in terms of progression and self-development. So mm-hmm. you put in the work, absolutely, to see some of those fruits bearing from that tree. That's a fantastic thing to be able to say to yourself. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff there. Um, and I think I may have touched on it on a couple of episodes. I think Teresa and I have talked about our 2.0 projects. And right. we've gone into some detail. One of the things that we talked about was the no complaint challenge. Uh, I finally got a wristband to, to put on my on my wrist here. That um, the idea is that if I make a complaint out loud, I have to switch the wrist to the other wrist or take the wristband and move it to my other wrist and to try to go 21 days without switching that wrist. And it's interesting, the little things that you complain about so easily that when you're conscious of it, you start to think, you know, is that worth complaining about? Is that worth vocalizing and bringing the people down around me? So that's been part of my, my, self-improvement plan over the last few months and and Teresa and I talked about our struggle trying to get the, this challenge going we I mean my first complaint right off the out of the gates was I couldn't find a suitable thing to put on my wrist to switch <laughs> so I was feeling so defeated by it and finally I um I, I've got this uh, wristband that I found in my daughter's room and I'll share one the first day I had it on the I got to call, and this is always going to be a challenge, is I made a call to customer service for my internet connection. Mm. And when I called, and I, I uh, wish I had it recorded, but it for whatever reason, the system was not picking up what I was... It said, please push one for English, and for French, push two. Mm-hmm. And so I pushed one and said... Please push one for English <laughs> or plus two for French. And I push one. I said, We're sorry you're not responding. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so I had to switch the wrist because I vocally, I was like, oh, for Christ's <laughs> sakes. It, it's like the old version of automatic denials the first time a claim is made, right? Mm, right? yeah. <laughs> so we'll just act like we're not hearing you and maybe you won't complain to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just and especially if you you know you had to find the number and you you're sitting there and um fortunately when I did call back it worked and then the the wait time was only about a minute which was a, which was surprising but anyway that was my little brush with the no complaint challenge the, the other day. Well, I, I don't think that's going to get any easier. I mean, we have children, and as they reach teenage stage, I think it becomes more and more of a priority in how we model and how we frame those things. Because in the end, we are their most frequent interaction point, and they are going to emulate and learn from us the most. And how we emote and express in that way when we are frustrated or when we're trying to work through something with them becomes the 
key markers for them as they progress in their own style of communicating or how they approach the world for that matter. Yeah, no, it's true. And I sometimes, I'm not sure if you ever noticed your, your kids emulating some of the, the things you do. And I sometimes see the, my kids say things where I'm, I'm, I get upset about it. And then I'm, then I, I've turned to my wife a couple of times and said, you know, that kind of sounds like me a bit. Is that why it's bothering me so much? Well, not to throw my wife under the bus, but this is an innocent one. One of my favorites was bringing my children to school one morning, and the roads here in Japan, or Tokyo, I should say, specifically, can be quite narrow. And I was driving around a double-parked car, which was parked immediately across the street from another double-parked car, making it extremely difficult to get through. And what does my six-year-old at the time say out loud? Jeez, this isn't a parking lot! (laughs) Yeah, and all I could yeah. think of was, who says that? Ah, now I remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, someone once told me that they said if you ever, if you ever get annoyed by something, think about it for a minute and and ask yourself: Is the reason I'm annoyed by this because I've actually done this exact same behavior at some right. point? And when I first heard that, I was like, no, that's not that's not what it is. And and actually, if you do reflect like that now and then it, it sometimes is exactly what what it is it's usually it's some sort of reflection in behavior you yourself have have done in the past let's go into your uh, interesting news story that you you came across and it's sort of related to what you brought up with the nba and the uh why don't you share that with us Sure. So what I'd read a little bit earlier today was that the US military was warning its troops in Japan not to try a instant relaxation drink, as it's termed, which contains hemp. So apparently American troops in Japan are barred from trying a new drink because of its ingredients. They're off limits to U.S. service members. The product is called Chill Out. It's a product of Coca-Cola Japan, and it's sold alongside soda and energy drinks in the country. It contains a hemp seed extract which the DOD, or Department of Defense, prohibits service members from consuming. And for those of you who don't know, hemp is a strain of the cannabis sativa plant. It's the same plant from which marijuana is harvested, but it contains less than 0.3% concentration of THC, the chemical that gives users the high that's associated with marijuana. Now, while it's legal in both the U.S. and Japan, consumption of hemp products, or CBD, or as it's termed, cannabidol, cannabidol, is prohibited by the DOD because they may cause a false positive result in drug tests. That's so, why? And it's not because of the effects of the hemp? No. Just because oh. they are prohibited from, in their drug tests from consuming what we call marijuana, but this may cause a false positive Oh, I see. So it will, it could cause a, fa- a false positive for what? For marijuana? Correct. I see. You know, it's interesting because for those that don't know, Japan, the Japanese, there's no drugs in Japan. Pretty much. Like, I'm sure it gets, it finds its way in here, but for the most part, Japan is a, you know, a drug-free country. Like, I think recreational use of drugs, unlike other countries, is mostly non-existent. You know, you in Canada, 
for as long as I can remember, if you went to a party, there was usually somebody smoking up yeah. somewhere or like, it's pretty common to, to have that around. But I mean, I didn't, I'm not a teenager in Japan, but I, I would expect that smoking up at a house party and, or a field party in Japan, if they even exist, is probably not that common an occurrence. From my understanding, no. And I, I have a group of friends who are quite active in winter sports, specifically snowboarding, most especially. Mm-hmm. And they said that whenever they go out to some of the resorts or their friends have places, it's out there, out in the countryside, where maybe somebody okay. has been growing something themselves or right. that they have access to something out there. But there's a very big fear factor here. And I'm not just talking about foreigners, because as a foreigner, if you're ever caught breaking a law related to drugs, you're gone. Your yeah. visa's revoked, and guess what? You're never coming back. And the stakes are even higher if your spouse is Japanese and you have kids here, because that God, means now yeah. you're now separated from your family, and you can't come back, and you've now caused great shame on your spouse's family. And the likelihood you'll remain connected with that family significantly decreases because of the pressure that your spouse will now be under from their own family to in some way, shape, or form separate from you. So there's an enormous risk involved in consuming illegal drugs in in Japan. And when it comes to the actual use of it and the repercussions, it's very big here to turn evidence or snitch in Japan. And police oftentimes will lean on a suspect to provide evidence for the next person up. No different than how it's portrayed in a lot of Western films where they're looking for the dealer, right? Right. So here, they're always looking for the next person up. And that could be just the friend who threw the party, who had it there. And then that person will lead them to whoever they got it from, and then potentially a distributor or someone else. So the tendency is for the police to utilize what they have as an asset, which is they can hold you for a certain amount of time and they can bring separate charges to hold you for that same amount of time again. They they can hold you, I believe it's 23 days. It could be 21. I may be speaking, but I believe it's 23 days that they can hold you under an original charge and they'll intentionally not charge you with everything if they have more than one charge on you because they want to hold that right to open a new charge against you on day 23 and then make it 46. Jeez. And on top of that, you can be questioned without a lawyer present in Japan. You do not have a right to having legal representation here. So all of, of this course, is I'm to say. Thinking of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we digressed a bit in terms yeah. of getting into the whole Japanese drug environment which i thought was important to the story sure so the whatever this product is coca-cola was allowed to produce it and distribute it in japan which is surprising to me in in a lot of ways but i guess let's just assume that's all went through and it happened which it did it's just funny that the department of just department of defense i should say in japan which many people may or may not know there's a lot of american servicemen in japan mostly based in Okinawa, I think, Um, maybe parts of Hiroshima as well. And so it's interesting that uh, the issue is more, it sounds like it's more of a convenience issue that people drinking, it's not so much drinking this drink and the effects of the drink, but more that it's going to cause these, as you said, false positives for the marijuana tests. 
Yes, uh, I think Japan being the location is a bit. It's a bit off. It puts you off kilter because the association with being a very drug-free place. Uh, yeah, the history of drugs here is a bit strange. Uh, there, there was a period where I believe marijuana seeds were actually used as part of cooking. Uh, here, it was part of a specific. I don't know where in Japan, but I've read something a while ago where there is a. a culture or group in in Japan that had been using marijuana seeds as part of their culinary history. And they had actually pushed, I believe, as well to have the right to continue to do so, even though marijuana had been designated as a, I guess you would say like a, in the US, they call it like a class A narcotic. You know, it was given the same designation here as crystal meth, right? Something very, mm. very harsh. Right. And I know with uh, psychedelic mushrooms here, it was legal until not that long ago. I, I would have to say like less than the last 20, 25 years. And essentially it was just a, a big embarrassment that happened at a university where there, there were some students who had been growing it and a bunch of people got slap happy and it, it caused an embarrassment to the university. And then everyone reacted and said, nope, no more of that. And they eliminated mm-hmm. that. And there were, there have been all kinds of illegal drugs that were coming into this country that uh, were not an issue until they were. And it, it's just kind of case by case, and it, it kind of works out that way. How restrictive it is now is just more around the the punishment uh, related to it. I don't know that the country was always so uber strict around it. But specific to this, CBD is a product that they're actually selling in lots of products here now in Japan. They have CBD oils and CBD lotions and all kinds of things that they're putting. They're putting CBD in serums for skincare and things like that for rejuvenation. Because mm-hmm. as you may recall here in Japan, youthfulness and skincare and all of those things are very, very popular here. Uh, you have tons and tons of products that use placenta and everything else in them uh, to try and help with the springiness of the skin and youthfulness of, of one's appearance. Yes, hence why you look so good on this Zoom call. <laughs> that or is through the, the Zoom Zoom screen. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, it's just a bath of CBD. <laughs> Don't come to my house. <laughs> Police. <laughs> okay, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't include some type of seasonal story. And in this case, it's... Uh, and I'm totally stealing your story you'd come up with here. Um, a Halloween story about uh, the growing the heaviest pumpkin of 2020. Man from Halloween capital of the world, which right away I didn't know there was one. <laughs> um, the 1,065.9 kilogram pumpkin, ni- nicknamed Tiger King. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming that's based on the show, The Tiger. Is it The Tiger King? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, that show just can't leave us, apparently. It says here the... The 35-hour drive from Anoka, Minnesota to Half Moon Bay, California was a smashing success for Travis Ginger when his massive pumpkin won the 47th annual Safeway World Championship Pumpkin Way Off. Interesting. To enter the contest, Ginger had to focus on one key aspect, making sure the 2,350-pound pumpkin didn't smash on its way. Transporting the pumpkin from Anoka, Minnesota to Half Moon Bay, California, took a 35-hour drive. To guarantee his giant gourd made it to California intact, Genger wrapped the pumpkin, which he named Tiger King, 
after the Netflix documentary series in tarps and made sure they remained wet through the journey. Huh. Guess that was to keep it, to keep the pumpkin moist or to um, keep keep it connected to the pumpkin. Not sure why the wet piece, but uh, yeah, it was a fitting victory for the resident of a town that calls itself the Halloween capital of the world. The appreciation was evident when he returned. I pulled into my place and I had a, I had big signs and gift certificates from the hardware store and the local grocery store. He said, this guy's a landscape horticulture teacher at Anoka Technical College. Grew the giant gourd in his backyard. Hmm. Interesting. So he, it looks like he may have used a bit of technology in his... I mean, you, I guess you'd have to use some type of technology in growing something that, that big, you know, mixing the right fertilizers and seeds and things like that. That's Yeah, that's some crazy work. I know someone in Ohio who used to be into competitive pumpkin growing, and I think his were probably a third of this weight, somewhere in the seven to 800-pound range, and they still looked enormous. Well, here's the thing. So he went through all that trouble, right? So he grows this massive thing. He drives 35 hours. Was there a payoff or a grand prize that he got for this? It says here, the grand prize for the cost, that cautious driving, a grand total of $16,450. Yeah, $16,450 okay. for, was it the grand prize? So I guess it made it worth it. I'm sure there was a not, it wasn't cheap to transport this thing 35 hours away and um, looks like it was worth it. I'm, I'm sure 16000 goes pretty far in Anoka, Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Anokan residents. I'm not speaking ill of your, your town. And for yeah. those that don't know, that's $22,000 Canadian or $7 a pound. Wow. I'm always interested in breaking it down further. How much water, <laughs> <laughs> how much electricity, how much everything was used <laughs> to, right. to make that $17,000 or so pop- possible. How big were the seeds? All right. Well, Justin, thanks for joining me today. This was uh, this was good. Always challenging to line these things up from a time zone perspective. And unfortunately, we couldn't get Teresa on this. So she would have been calling in at 1.30 her time. But uh, due to an equipment issue, she wasn't able to participate. But I'm glad you made it. And hopefully, we'll have you back on again some sometime soon. Yeah, thanks. This was great. I enjoyed it. And I look forward to the next session. Awesome. All right. Have a good week or weekend. You as well.